0: was at the airport a few years ago and there was this guy at the end of the TSA line repacking his things in his suitcase uh, clearly his bag got flagged and they pulled him aside to check for any forbidden items but as this man stood with his shoes off struggling to fit everything back in his little bag he was irate and I'll, I'll never forget he just shouted to no one in particular it's disgusting what you people make us do Disgusting. Usually it's a porta potty that's disgusting, or rotting meat, or maggots in the garbage. Okay, sorry if I'm grossing you out, but the point is that deep, visceral feeling of being grossed out doesn't really make sense in the highly sanitized environment of airport security. Nevertheless, our feelings of what's wrong, unjust, or immoral in a general sense can get connected. our feelings of disgust. We say things like, I'm disgusted by what you've done, or the choices he makes are revolting, or what a repulsive little human being. Now, normally it's great that we feel disgust. It's what keeps us from eating moldy food and spending time in dirty environments, all of which could make us sick. But it's interesting that those same feelings get wrapped up in some people's disapproval of obese, foreign, or homosexual people and their opinions of different cultural practices uh, and airport security. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about the science of our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell, and this week I talk to Yoel Inbar... He's an associate professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, and he studies how feelings of disgust are related to moral judgments and public opinion. We talk about how disgust works, what it means for opinions to be moral, and why it's difficult to change people's opinions of genetically modified foods in particular. Is it fair to say that your work is sort of largely interested in the role that moral beliefs and moral emotions contribute to opinion or are reflected in opinion? Does it, is that a fair characterization of stuff that you've done?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I've always been interested in morality just in general. And I, I have some stuff that's just like really kind of more technical, moral judgment stuff about, you know, do we need causal responsibility for a bad outcome to find somebody morally blameworthy? Um, but then I've also just always been interested in how does our research on morality apply to kind of real world con like uh, controversies, right? So things about which people uh, disagree. And I've actually written a, book chapter somewhat recently arguing that, you know, as moral psychologists, we ought to be doing more application because we have interesting things uh, to say there. Um, so I've always had that kind of more kind of applied in the sense of like, we want to study people's attitudes about like real world controversial issues. I've always ha- kind of had that interest in my work. Can you think back to, to what, it, what it was in the beginning
0: that brought you there? I mean, a lot, I mean, this is going to be post hoc speculating, but sort of, the young you sort of starting out bright eyed, looking down the barrel of all of these questions. What what was sort of the fire that that was burning?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So I uh, I started out studying disgust and uh, politics and political ideology, and that's already inherently a little more applied, right? You're, you're studying mm-hmm. people's attitudes on politically controversial issues. So it I, I think it, it I just kind of got led down that road. You know, it wasn't really that I went to grad school knowing what I wanted to do really at all. Like I had some sort of loose interests, but then those really changed when I started talking to faculty there, when I started reading the literature. And also, honestly, when some stuff worked and some stuff didn't, I pursued the stuff that worked, right? Uh, so I'm really skeptical for myself of any story that's like, well, I always knew that blah, 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 (laughs) (laughs) right? It's more like, hey, things happen to shake out this way.
0: What were some of the early nuggets that, that sort of made it seem compelling that disgust was worth pursuing in the domain of politics?
1: Yeah. So this line of research that really it was done in collaboration with David Pizarro, who was just starting as a new faculty member there uh, when I was uh, a second year grad student, Um, this line of research came from kind of an accidental finding that he had. So he was interested in disgust and moral judgment, and he had been running some studies on that. uh, And uh, he was looking specifically in these studies at dispositional disgust uh, using a version of the disgust scale, the uh, heightened Rosin scale. And uh, he uh, had given people that scale, he had given them some moral judgment um, scenarios. And, and then he had also asked them about their politics. And he found what he thought was this weird, almost like nuisance correlation. He's like, it's, you know, like that's strange. Like the conservatives are more disgust sensitive. And I was like, he, he presented this in like a lab meeting. And I was like, oh, that actually, I find that interesting, right? And it's consistent with some theorizing about disgust that had been happening at the time about how it was supposed to be about purity and particularly about like bodily purity, which often is about kind of sexual behavior. I was like, ah, oh, that kind of conceptually makes sense. Uh, but I don't think anybody's studied that. And so I proposed to David that we start studying it. So that's how that whole line of research kind of got going as just this kind of lucky accident that he happened to find this thing um, and happened to mention it in a lab meeting. And I happened to find it interesting. So what is it about disgust
0: then that is informative for the opinions that people form politically
1: or even beyond the political domain? Yeah. So I, I think what makes it important is that it's such a potent motivator of behavior uh, so when you are disgusted by something, you have a very strong reaction to that thing, right? So with a physical disgust elicitor, it's you really don't want that thing next to you. If it's touching you, you really want it off of you and so on. And, and so when you extend that to non-physical stimuli, we see that disgust in the same way is associated with these like very strong tendencies to action. What we've argued, um, or at least implied in some of our work, is that that can sort of cause people to react strongly, even in the presence of little information, right? So like, I don't know a lot about it, but if it grosses me out, then I don't like it, right? And that's part of the argument that we've made about um, GM foods, uh, which I guess we'll get into uh, genetically modified foods and in a couple of papers is that when people are, uh, they have a disgust-based response that says no, uh, then they say, hey, I want that prohibited, even if they don't know a lot of the kind of scientific uh, debate around whether these things are safe or not. It's kind of like like a very
0: strong signal of valence, whereas like other emotions can kind of more vaguely inform you about where you stand on something Disgust is like just a very
1: clear signal that cuts across a lot of noise to say like, this is a no good situation. This is bad and it should be avoided, right? Like, so obviously there's other strong emotions too, like, like anger, but, you know, disgust sort of uniquely is this extremely strong avoidance response. Like, no, I don't want that. I want it far away from me. So what are some examples of opinions that people form that are that seem to be
0: either built on disgust or reflective of disgust. I was, I was reading something you, were, you wrote earlier today on sort of the different ways in which disgust might be implicated in attitudes. Either it's the cause of the attitude or it's a consequence of the judgment or it amplifies the judgment. Could you talk a little bit about what, what role does disgust actually play in opinion and, and give an example of a, a kind of opinion where disgust is relevant?
1: Yeah. So we started this work, obviously, uh, looking at, at politics. Uh, and there we think of disgust or I, I guess I would say more precisely, people talk about the behavioral immune system, which is a whole kind of range of pathogen avoidance responses and disgust as one of those as underlying, um, some attitudes or being like a Part cause, I think, of those attitudes. So, particularly Josh Tyber and I have looked at sexual conservatism, and there I think we have pretty solid evidence to say um, people who are more uh, disgust sensitive are overall more politically conservative, and that is because they are more uh, sexually conservative specifically. Now, still, you know, what we're doing is um, you know, we are uh, we're looking at essentially correlational evidence and doing then path models where we. Uh, test whether uh, a path is uh influential or not, but I think we 're as convincing as you can get with with correlational data um, This amplification idea now this is something where i you know i 'm not sure I believe this quite as strongly as maybe I used to because the amplification idea was based on on studies where you give people a moral judgment like a transgression let's say. And then you make them disgusted, incidentally. Let's say you make the room smell bad, uh, you put them in a messy environment, and so on. And that amps up their uh, moral condemnation of the violation, uh, which is unrelated to that uh, disgusting stimulus. So it's a, a carryover effect. And you know, I've just seen enough failures to replicate and a meta-analysis from Justin Landy and colleagues that make me skeptical about whether those kinds of carryover effects are, are meaningful, right? So they might exist, but be very small. They might actually be null. Um, I say that having published one of these carryover studies myself, right, um, where we made the room smell bad and then it made people uh, more negative towards um, gay men and lesbians. I I don't know if I would I would bet on that result now, to be honest. Um, just given the context of like how fragile these carryover effects have been and the fact that like this was all you know, those studies were done before pre-registration and that sort of thing. Um so those carryover effects I'm I'm like more skeptical of now. And then finally there's disgust as a If if
0: I could interrupt you there for yeah, a second though, sure. just so the let's take at face value what the carryover effect would be, just to make sure that we understand what right, that actually right. means. So it, so it
1: would be the, there's, there's an unrelated source of disgust, and that carries over into some other judgment, right? So if I'm like, I hear that this dude, I don't know, Jesus um, on his taxes, and then I'm disgusted while I read that scenario versus not, I'm harsher in my judgments of him when I'm disgusted versus when I'm not. That's the basic idea. Right. So physically, if
0: I feel disgusted for whatever reason, I sort of is it that I misapply or or misattribute that to the transgression? I go like, "Oh, why do I feel so yucky? It must be that this this is so reprehensible what this guy did is that is that like the explanation for it? Yeah, it's a misattribution story mm-hmm. and so what so, just for the sake of curiosity, in the studies that you've done, you say you make the room smell bad that that sounds pretty straightforward. but what does that mean? That you you construct a bad smelling room,
1: yeah, that's right. I actually um, I really like this study. Uh, what we did is we found this kind of stink spray, um, and we dosed a room with it or not, and we had people be in that room and make these judgments about different social groups, including about gay people. Um, so we actually had to run these on different days, right? Because it takes a little while for the <laughs> the room to air out, and it was quite a process. Um, finding uh the right uh stink substance you know we went through a bunch of different things and like you know it can't be too pungent or else people walk in immediately and they're like oh my (laughs) god it smells terrible (laughs) right and this is also in a shared lab space so there were definitely some logistical challenges there Uh, so the idea is you know the room smells bad they're more negative towards uh certain social groups that was our prediction Okay. And so then, then the, the
0: third way that, that disgust can be relevant?
1: Right. So that's when it arises as a consequence of hearing about uh, some sort of behavior. Um, so you might, uh, for example, read about uh, incest between a father and a daughter, right? And you, you just feel viscerally disgusted by reading about that moral transgression.
0: So in terms of what precedes what, does that mean that the that these are coming on at the same time that I'm I'm judging this as immoral as I'm feeling disgusted, or am I reading from my disgust that this must be immoral? Uh, I guess I'm just wondering in terms of how these three possibilities were outlined, a lot of it seems to have to do with like what causes what, and so I'm curious in this case what what is the idea?
1: Yeah, so so in 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 this case, it's a disgust as a moral emotion that's a reaction, right? So it's a consequence, not a cause. In the same way that if you read about injustice, um, you might feel angry. Um, in that case, the anger follows from your moral judgment that an injustice has occurred. Um, and in this case, it would be that disgust follows from a judgment that something bad has occurred. The something there, it's a little bit hazy, right? So Height and colleagues talk about violations of this morality of purity, which has to do with, you know, partly with sexuality, but not entirely. Um, so it can also be, um, being particularly like self-indulgent or slothful or just filthy in your living conditions or, and there's a little bit of a conflation there because sometimes, you know, it's like, well, somebody who like just doesn't shower a lot. Well, that's also just physically gross. Right. But, Haidt's argument is that that sort of behavior is also moralized, right? So it's there's some things that are immoral, not disgusting. There's some things that are disgusting, not immoral. And there's some things that are, that are both in the Venn diagram. And for those things, when you hear about that, that kind of a moral violation, you experience disgust as a response.
0: But specifically when it's a moral violation. So it seems, I mean, a lot of the talk about disgust is that it's tied hand in hand with moral judgment and moral thinking. Does that seem right? Is it sort of those two live in the same neighborhood, or do they just kind of happen to coexist more often than not,
1: right? Should we think of disgust as moral specifically? Yeah. Um, I think it is involved in moral judgment, certainly. Um, it also does a lot of non-moral stuff, right? You're disgusted by a lot of non-moral content. And I think that um, the way that disgust has occupied this kind of central place in like, the last, I would say, like- maybe 10, 15 years of the study of morality, you might think, well, that's all it does. And that's of course not all it does, right? I would say its primary function is still like um avoiding physical disgust elicitors. But in the same way that anger, you know, like you can be angry in a non-moral context, certainly, um, but it has a lot of moral relevance and it arises frequently in response to moral violations. I think disgust is is the same. Um it just does come up a lot when people encounter what they perceive to be immoral behavior. Is there any reason
0: why it it would be tied to morality specifically? Because the idea is sort of evolutionarily discussed, evolved for its own reasons, right? Sort of just protecting people. Um, And so why does it make sense that that got co-opted by a moral system specifically versus just a more general, like, uh, let's avoid the stuff that is unpleasant?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I think depending on what exactly kind of behavior you're talking about, um, it, there are different answers. So when it comes to stuff around social conservatism in particular, right, so people who might um, disapprove of promiscuous sex or gay marriage or um, other kinds of non-normative sexuality, um, Josh and I, Josh Tiber and I make this argument um, that this has to do with particularly um, motivation to avoid pathogens, and that people who have a stronger motivation to avoid pathogens also have a reproductive interest in furthering certain kinds of behavior and discouraging through moralizing other kinds of behavior. Um, So this is an account that's really about um, people not consciously, but in the end, serving their their own ends by promoting certain kinds of moral rules. Um, I don't think that's generally true of disgust as a reaction to, to more broadly to perceived immorality. Um, so the question then is, you know why should disgust be linked to condemnation of immorality more broadly? And I don't know that people have come up with a, an answer that I find really satisfying. My speculation um, is that because disgust has this kind of action tendency of distancing, of I don't want to interact with that, I, I want to, that thing away from me, um, that it has a sort of a motivational fit to particularly our reactions to people who we think are untrustworthy or who otherwise have bad character, right? They're people that we don't want to be interacting with. They're people we don't want in our social groups. They're people that we want to shun. And so I think disgust there has kind of a, a congruence with those ends in that it motivates us to do exactly that. Yeah. And one thing that makes it
0: challenging is I also find that What morality is also is pretty slippery. So, I mean, maybe you have a better sense of it than I do. I mean, I've tried to do some work in the moral psych world. And especially as someone who comes from doing research on attitudes and opinions and evaluation, it can seem like, well, what is the difference between a moral judgment and a judgment judgment? Right. What's the special fancy flair that morality brings to it? Um, And maybe that's the tricky part of calling something a moral emotion, hyper specifically. Is that we're sort of trying to put it in a box that maybe isn't as rigid a box as we think it is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean these these definitional issues are are you know quite tricky. Uh, so uh, people have proposed various criteria um, for how you separate a moral belief from any other kind of attitude. Um, so Linda Skitka has a, a measure that basically just asks people: Is this connected to your moral beliefs and values? There's other work coming from uh, social domain theory, so so Turiel, where you can look at, uh, do people think that this should be universally applied? Do people think that this is an objective fact, right? So if I have even a very strong preference to, uh, let's say, I hate Brussels sprouts, I don't think there's anything wrong with somebody else loving them, right? I don't want to ban them for other people. I can imagine a community of people who all love Brussels sprouts and that doesn't bother me at all, On the other hand, you know, when it comes to like, let's say murder of the innocent, uh, that's not a situation where I'm like, well, I have my beliefs, you have yours, right? So I I think those are some kind of productive ways that you can think about what distinguishes like a moral belief from from a a strong attitude. But I think whenever you talk about this stuff, you have to keep in mind like, yeah, the theoretical distinction might be clean, but in the real life, those lines are kind of blurry. Is is there something about
0: disgust that maps onto that universality idea? So if if it's disgusting to me, can I even imagine that this would not be disgusting to someone else? Right. And a lot of the times the things that are disgusting to us seem like they're kind of basic disgust feelings that we'd go like, well, any human who saw this level of vomit on the street would be disgusted, right? There's no I can't imagine the person who walks by and, and doesn't have this reaction. Does that, does that align with the disgust
1: as a moral emotion? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I would need to think about that more. I do feel, well, so what do people make of cultures in which people happily consume something that the judge thinks is just revolting? right? So Mm. you learn about a culture where people eat, I I don't know, some like part of the animal you would never consider eating or they eat like insects or whatever, right? And you're like, I'm profoundly disgusted by that. Am I puzzled by the fact that people in that culture like it? I I actually, I, I don't know, right? Maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit. You're like, I just don't get how anybody could find that appealing.
0: And it seems like the kind of thing that you'd say, it's just, it just feels wrong. How could anyone eat that? Right. <laughs> right? It's I those just disgusting don't get things it. that feel wrong.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, I'm baffled by how anybody could want to eat that.
0: Yeah. If Before we move on from the disgusting, I just want to know, if we peel back the the laboratory and and look at like what, what you're actually looking at when you're drawing conclusions about disgust, right? One of the things is, yeah, I can make the room smell horrific. Um But how else can I know that disgust is playing a role in people's judgments?
1: Yeah, so you can ask them uh, for ratings. So you can say, how disgusted are you um, with this uh, behavior? That has a problem of, you know, people obviously sometimes use that term not literally, but metaphorically. Often those. Ratings are also highly correlated with people's ratings of anger, and you can statistically control for one, look at the effect of disgust controlling for anger. You know, we've done that sometimes. Um, This is more labor intensive, but uh, Hannah Chapman and Adam Anderson have this great paper where they actually look at uh, activation of the facial muscles that are associated with disgust. And they show that those facial muscles become activated when people encounter certain immoral behavior. And so that's a really nice way to do it, but it's obviously um, a lot tougher than asking people to fill out a rating scale. So if we
0: move on to, to GMOs, was that? interest related to disgust or morality or did it sort of just kind of come up as a as a passion project of a, of a topic that everybody you and a, and a team of people cared about
1: oh no that was that was absolutely related so i first started caring about this because i was thinking about this research that we had done relating disgust to a number of conservative attitudes and i was like you know we're really just picking on the conservatives here and surely there must be attitudes uh, on the liberal side that are driven by disgust and I thought that GMO opposition would be one of those attitudes. And it turns out I had this incorrect lay theory. This wasn't based on research. I just thought that people on the left would be more anti-GMO than people on the right. And I think that's an intuition lots of people share. Whenever I talk about this research, people um, seem to have that intuition. It's actually not true. So we find, and and lots of other researchers also find, you know, minimal to no Relationships between political ideology and people's uh, acceptance of or opposition to genetically modified food. If there is a relationship there, it's tiny. So, in the sense of trying to find like a left wing attitude that was motivated by disgust, um, I didn't have a lot of luck with that, unfortunately. Um, but uh, we, uh, that's uh, Sydney Scott and Paul Rosin, and I decided this was worth pursuing regardless, and we thought it was kind of interesting. We're finding this, these relationships between uh, our measures of disgust sensitivity and GMO attitudes. And so we're like, okay, well, let's pursue this and just drop the political angle.
0: So what is it about genetically modified foods that would be disgusting or
1: or disgust relevant? Yeah. So they, they have two um, important attributes, I think, that contribute. First, they're ingested, right? And so disgust is particularly attuned to things that you put into your body. And secondly this is more metaphorical, they involve what in, in another paper we called playing God, um, in that it's intervening in the process of um, life, death, and reproduction. And we find kind of broadly that the more disgust-sensitive people are, the less they like specifically these kinds of playing God technologies. In this case, we were looking at a range of different technologies. So that, that kind of feeling of like a, another way people put this is they think it's unnatural Right, that's just another description of the same idea that we're we're getting at. It just feels like people are tampering with something here that they shouldn't be tampering with, creating something that you know shouldn't exist in nature. And that's what makes
0: GMO attitudes unique, right? That they're they're tapping on this feeling of this is unnatural, or I'm opposed to it. And in some ways, I, I guess to back up, I'm just thinking of the political ideology angle. Are there relationships? You said there are relationships between ideology and disgust sensitivity, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. But that's not then translating into political differences in GMO opposition. No, no. And keep in mind, the relationship between disgust sensitivity and overall political ideology, it's an R of like maybe 0.2, maybe 0.3, right? So it's significant consistently, but it's not explaining by any means the majority of the variance there. So I don't, I'm not surprised in the end that we are not seeing that carry through to people's GMO attitudes. So meaning that more
0: conservative, by by saying it's a small correlation, it means that if you are more conservative, you're a little bit more likely to have uh, a sensitivity to disgust compared to if you're relatively liberal. But that doesn't mean that all conservatives always are more disgust sensitive than all liberals always, right? It just means that uh, you're a little bit more likely on average.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, So it's... uh not surprising to me, given how multiply determined people's politics are, that that relationship wouldn't be huge. Um, so yeah, we're, we're looking at small differences here. Yeah. It would be weird if it was like the
0: thing that determined people's politics was disgust sensitivity.
1: I would say, you know, if we get that result, something has gone wrong, right? That just shouldn't be the case. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. right.
0: And so just kind of to, to think about the work that you've done on this, what, what is it that, that you found about GMO attitudes that's worth sharing. What what new insights do we have about people's reactions to genetically modified foods, knowing that they have these kinds of unnaturalness responses and disgust responses to them?
1: Yeah, so... The way people have thought about GMO attitudes, and this is something I should say, it's been studied a lot, right? Because you get this really striking divergence between what's the scientific consensus and what do lay people believe. So the scientific consensus, just to be clear, um, is that there's no evidence for any risks of genetically modified foods in excess of the risks associated with conventionally produced um, crops. That's mainly what's been looked at is is plants. Um, So that's not to say that there is zero risk. It's just that there's also risks associated with conventional breeding. right? So you can conventionally breed um, a new uh, variety of uh, a crop that's toxic, and you can GM it as well. uh, But there doesn't seem to be excess risk to people, to human health, uh, associated with uh, GM crops. And, you know, people really don't believe that, right? So there's a lot of people who think uh, GMOs should be just banned entirely. And you ask them, what are your bases for believing that? And the number one thing they tell you is, I think that they're risky to people. Um, now, that, that's strange, right? That there's just this huge gulf between what do the experts say and, and what do people think? Um, usually, by the way, when you see those kinds of gaps, it's because the issue is politicized. So, climate change, for example, is, is an example of a similarly sized gap. Um, but there, there's an obvious reason, right? So, members of one political party are much more climate change skeptical. Um, it's, it's strange that you would see this big gap in the absence of uh, a party using that in, in some sort of political context. So, uh, people have been studying that a lot. Um, and one thing that's definitely true is that lay people just don't know a lot about science in general or about the science of biotechnology in particular. Um, And it's also correlationally true that the more education you have, the more pro-GMO you are. So anyway, people kind of naturally assume, well, that the problem is like lack of information. It's been called information gap hypothesis, like if we just tell people more of the stuff that scientists know, it's going to change their minds, right? kind of give them the scientific consensus, the state of the art of what scientists know, and it's going to convince people, and it turns out it doesn't really, right? You give people information, um, and it either doesn't move them at all, or it just polarizes people further, such that the people who are like already inclined to be pro get more pro. The people who are already inclined to be anti get more anti. Um, and that that's uh, sort of a, obviously a problem for the theory of like, well, if you just inform people, they're going to change their minds. Uh, So what we had to add, I think, is to say, well, what if we think about this as like a moral belief, right? So for people's moral beliefs, are people particularly responsive to factual information? Well, sometimes, but it's kind of not the most important thing. And often it doesn't change their minds. So there's this classic study that I'm sure you know, where researchers took people who were either uh, pro-death penalty or opposed to the death penalty, and they exposed them uh, to mixed information, and people were highly selective in in how they treated that information, right? So if the information was consistent with what they believed already, um, they thought that uh, that information was highly trustworthy and reliable. And then conversely, they were motivated to disparage uh, the information that was inconsistent with their worldview, right? Yeah,
0: and Very convenient that, that the information that supports me is the stuff that I think is the best information. So I'm going to run with it. Exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> right. And it's not like the... I think the important thing here is it's, it's not like, you know, the... The flaws that people were pointing to in the information that disagreed with them—it's not like those were made up. It's just that they were very, very selective in their attention to flaws, right? so the, the information that they didn't like was really highly scrutinized. The information that was uh, that they did like wasn't. Um, and so similarly, you know, when you give people information about, uh, you know, about a complicated topic like the safety of these kinds of foods, you know, it's never going to be a hundred percent. Um, we've absolutely eliminated the possibility of any kind of risk from this, even risks that like couldn't be foreseen right now. I mean, it's just impossible, right? So you kind of responsibly have to give people information that's more nuanced. That's like, well, as far as we know, by now we haven't seen any blah blah blah, right? So when people come in there with a pre-existing moral belief, they're going to be like, aha, I knew it, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, I knew there was doubt, and is it, so it's not it's not surprising that then that people shouldn't really respond to that kind of information. In a, in a way that, um, that these researchers had, had, I think expected that they would, you know, be convinced by the balance of the evidence. Because when you have a preexisting belief, you're really motivated to look for the evidence that is consistent with your belief, even if that's not, um, what the balance of the evidence says. So basically that, that kind of idea is just sort of the core of what we've done. And we've tried to look at, well, okay, um, let's see if we can ask people questions that tap, um, is this a moral Belief for you, and we have kind of a series of questions that we ask people to try and get at that in different ways, and then we divide people up on the issue of GM food in particular. You know, are you a moralized opponent? Are you a supporter? Are you um, a non-moralized opponent? So those are people who tell us anyway that they would be responsive to um to information that might change their mind. Um, and then we try to look at those different groups and see like, well, how do they compare? Um, how do they compare on disgust, for example? Um, how do they differently respond to information that we give them? And so on. To, to go back to the the information gap, part of what's
0: curious about that is it's it's not that people are just neutral without knowing about science is that they're they're on the other side there's there's a there's an emotional draw to be suspicious of and to not trust it and in some ways that also probably speaks to why it can be relatively difficult to change those minds right even if you're tapping the right strings there's something at stake right there's still a feeling of like well i don't know even if you can tell me why this is fine and good i can't shake this like feeling that you know like you you can't tell me <laughs> that this awful grotesque image in front of me isn't bad right like i just look at it and i have this feeling right you can't just talk me out of it and in some ways that that's is a challenge for lots of opinions that that are going to seem to get stuck in that feeling people can't shake
1: yeah that's exactly right so i mean the way that we think about it um is that people have these Intuitive responses to certain kinds of technologies that kind of push them in one way or another. And that's consistent with a ton of literature that says, like, often people rely on their feelings as guides to decision making, right? Um, so, in the risk perception literature, you know, Slovak and colleagues have this risks as feelings idea of like, that's basically that. Like, does it feel good or bad to you? And that determines your. Explicit judgments about a, bu- a bunch of other things, but that's really downstream of this initial feeling of like ugh, right? Um, and then the challenge for us has always been to like really be kind of rigorous um, and not post hoc about like what are the sorts of things that are likely to evoke the ugh. Right. And that's kind of what we're working on now. And we, we, you know, we have some ideas about um, novelty, about the kinds of specific domains that might be involved, but it's still very much work in progress.
0: Nevertheless, there are people who support GMOs, right? I think for me, this is an issue. I often get a little highfalutin and elitist about uh, food issues in general, but GMOs is one that I've always been ready to say, fine, I don't really care, right? I'm on board with all sorts of other um, maybe fringy food movements, but GMOs have always seemed like, oh, what's the big deal? So for people who are already support GMOs, what is different about them that,
1: that gets them to override these naturalness or disgusts orientations? Yeah, that's interesting. So I don't have good evidence for this, but my intuition is that they are not overriding. So I don't know about you, um, but the way I think about the process of genetic engineering is that it's just a way more precise way of doing what we've been doing all along, right? We want to change the genome and we can either do that by like basically throwing arrows in the dark, that is by conventional breeding, or we can do it by going in there and changing the thing that we want to change. So that to me changes it from this, oh, you know, they're doing this unnatural thing that's having these like um, strange and uh, kind of scary effects to, well, this is kind of a mechanical process of manipulation right? Um, And I don't know whether there's something about me that already predisposes me to take that sort of framing. But I think once you do, it just, um, it makes it less likely that you're going to experience that gut reaction in the first place.
0: It also, because it does seem possible that there are just people who are, are ready to see this issue in different ways. And that I think is the challenge for a lot of persuasion because you go, well, in psychology, we're often looking for these giant like this intervention will change the thing that we want to change. But I, I think there's this often, yeah, often unacknowledged dimension of individual difference where some people are just ready to see it in the way you want people to see it, and others are just going to say, you can't show me genetic modification without me thinking about playing God with nature.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So this is sort of an unfortunate Consequence of like the social personality divide, where social psychologists just really don't like to think about individual differences. But I think that's exactly right. All right? If you're talking specifically with interventions, it has to be that different people are differently receptive to those interventions.
0: So, would you have a takeaway message to to policymakers or communicators about how to think about? GMOs, how to approach talking about these issues, or even just acknowledging the role of disgust in public opinion? What would What would policymakers and communicators want to know about
1: this? Right. So I think the practical takeaway is particularly if you're trying to move public opinion, uh, you have to go to people where they are, right? So I, I know you have a recently published paper that looks at this, right? The the influence of moral arguments on GM attitudes in particular. Uh, with uh, Sidney Scott and Paul Rosin, we have some similar studies that likewise show that particularly the moralized opponents, they don't really respond to the risk-benefit arguments. They do respond to arguments that we call them uh, like a, a moral countering argument, where you're like, here's this other moral consideration that you might not have thought of. Right? Those seem to be more effective. And they seem to be more effective uniquely for those moral opponents, right? For, so supporters seem to find the two kinds of arguments roughly equally persuasive. See a big gap um, for the opponents. Gotcha. Well, thanks so much for talking
0: about uh, disgust and opinions and GMOs and all the, all the good stuff in between. It was great to have you on here.
1: Uh, thanks so much for the invite. It was a pleasure being on.
0: All right, that'll do it for this episode of Opinion Science. Thanks to Yoel for coming on. Uh, And to learn more about his work, check out the show notes for a link to his website. And as it turns out, Yoel is also a fellow podcaster. You can check out the show he does with Mickey Inslicht called Two Psychologists, Four Beers, where they talk about social psychology, academia, and controversies in science. For more about this show, visit OpinionSciencePodcast.com or follow us at OpinionSciPod on Twitter or Facebook. And this is a very new show, so if you like this and support what we're doing, please just take a couple of seconds to review us on Apple Podcasts and share it on social media. It'll really help get the word out. Okay, uh, that's it. See you next time.